This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly starting right now, bringing emergency managers from around the world together to learn, share and collaborate. Really what the Department of Commerce has done is said, hey, you guys got to develop a first net. And so there's this first net capacity that's going to come happen. That's almost a 5G for the government. Hi, welcome to EM Weekly, your emergency management podcast. And this is your host, Todd DeVoe speaking. This week, we are talking to Air Force Lieutenant Colonel retired Joseph Bernard. And he rose from the ranks of just enlisted guy in the army to commanding a, a pararescue program in the Air Force called PJs. Joe and I are discussing leadership in emergency management using some of the principles of what the PJs use. And I think the insights that Joe gives are amazing and it's going to change your paradigm on what leadership is. Now on to the interview. I want to welcome uh, Joe Bernard to to EM Weekly. This is kind of exciting uh, conversation we're going to be having. So Joe has a pretty extensive background in the military and kind of what he's doing here today in his civilian world. So uh, Joe, welcome to EM Weekly. Thank you, Todd. Appreciate it, buddy. So Joe, tell me a little just a little bit about yourself and and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, so I'm a 54 year old guy who's running a uh, wireless construction company. Um, but as 18, I joined the Army. I was in the 82nd Airborne for uh, several years, both in state, station stateside and over in Vicenza, Italy. Then I got out and was a lifeguard in South Florida uh, for a while in beaches and parks. And I was sitting in a tower with a guy, and he's like, hey, man, have you ever heard about Air Force Pararescue? It's a pretty cool job. Get to jump out of planes and shoot guns and, you know, be a highly qualified medic. And I'm like, oh, that sounds good to me. So. Uh, I joined that in 88, and then I was a PJ all the way through till 2001, um, and I got commissioned as a combat rescue officer. It was a new career field. The Air Force started to put officers in charge of pararescuemen um, because the helicopters were getting too complex, and the helicopter pilots were in charge at that time, and, and our mission set was getting complex. Um, and so then I was a combat rescue officer all the way up to 2016 and retired, and now I'm starting my second life as a capitalist. So uh, uh, very, nothing really bad to say about my career. A lot of things to say about it, but nothing really bad, just things to learn from it. So some of the lessons that you learned through the way. Um, well, first of all, thank you for your service. You know? yeah. uh, uh, so some of the things you learn along the way. Um, how do they parlay into emergency management style of, uh, of managing an event? Well, you know, the biggest thing is preparation is key. Uh, you train the way you fight. And so credibility comes from when you prove stuff out in training. So when the crisis does happen, decision makers are confident that, yeah, these guys can handle that. They've trained to it. They've done it. Um, we've done a ton of FTXs, field training exercises. We've done a bunch of CPXs, command post exercises. Uh, sometimes they're together. 
I think CPXers are good when you're developing your script and your plans and you get a tabletop almost like a script read like Hollywood does and, and people understand what their jobs are and what they're supposed to, supposed to do. And then you could hot wash or after action those things and go, hey, man, you, you're falling short on this. This is your timeline, the suspense to get this back up. And then you go out and sort of FTX what the sort of CPX develops. Uh, another good training aspect of what we did, we, do, we used to do part task training versus full mission profile. Part task training may be um, just the jump portion of a full mission profile. So we would jump, 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 get good at jumping. And then we could add that to the full mission profile where we jump, we have a land movement, we have a patient, we have uh, some sort of contact with the enemy, then we would have some sort of movement again, then extraction and, you know, definitive medical treatment on the way back. So all those could be separate park task trainers that you put together. So if you just try to do full mission profiles the whole time or FTXs and you don't do a CPX or a park task training, then you're sort of not getting um, that advanced skill level that you need in all those different parts. And, and it's way more manageable, too, because these crises are big, nasty animals, as all your community knows. And so the only way to handle a big, nasty animal is to compartmentalize it out and just sort of deliberately, methodically, calmly solve the problems as they come up. One of the things I notice sometimes when we do training here, countywide trainings, large-scale trainings like this, especially if they're, they're full-functional exercises, is that the field guys, um, number one, feel it's a waste of their time because they don't really – and so I think it's our fault on, on design of the exercise, but they don't feel like they're getting anything. And I remember uh, a few years ago, we we're having this thing called the Golden Guardian exercise, which you know, happened here. We, we did in Anaheim where um, a terrorist event happened. They blew up, they blew up a, a train as part of the exercise. And so we had all these assets sitting at the parking lot over Anaheim Stadium where the Angels play baseball. And a, the majority of the coppers were just sitting in, a, in, their, in their car waiting to do something, and then they got to drive around a little bit, and then they went home. I was talking to the guys. I said, this is the biggest waste of our time. We did absolutely nothing. Now, they got paid overtime, you know, so I guess it wasn't that big of a complaint, but they were still just saying, it's a waste of our time. Why do we do these things? How, do, how can we take, using, like, the military model, how can we take some of those concepts and put them in here into the civilian model into the responders um, doing a good quality training for them? Yeah, so our FTX has evolved over a planning life cycle. And so there will be several planning sessions throughout the year. If you have an annual exercise, the key players have got to be there nine months out when that planning session is going on. And then, you, you know, you have to have a proper white cell that oversees the exercise, that keeps the exercise going. And so, you know, you got red, blue, and green forces, but that white cell sort of controls. And so you don't want anything to stagnate. And so really it comes down to the planning cycle and the competency of the people running those meetings. Like they, these meetings shouldn't be boondoggles. They should be serious stuff. There should be time on target. Here we are. We're starting at this time. This is the agenda of what we're going through. This is what we're handling. These are the key players. This is, what we're, this is the problem that we're presenting. This is how we think they should solve it several courses of action associated with that. We have a military decision-making process, which has a significant mission analysis portion associated with that MDMP that sort of structures us and sort of how we do this. So, you know, you got to take this stuff serious. So shame on sort of who planned those cops to sort of be there that sort of had them sitting around because you really don't want anybody sitting around. Everybody should get something out of the exercise. Now, then... Also, I'll say shame on those cops individually for saying, 
okay, man, they didn't plan it right. You can do two things. You can sit around and bitch or you can sit around and get the most out of it type of training that you're doing. And so just like negative atmospheres is uh, contagious, so is a positive atmosphere that you sort of get out and go and do that stuff. So, you know, you got to hold yourself individually accountable to make sure that this stuff goes on. And then you better show up to that after action and go A, B, C, and D. This is who, what, where, when, why. This could have been done better. And that after action, then there's got to be a follow-up in the next planning cycle of everything that did, went wrong so the next exercise is better. It's, a, you know, it's complex stuff, man. You know, uh, once a big dynamic happens to people's lives, active shooter, some sort of natural disaster, whatever it may be, man, people's worlds are rocked. And so this community is set up to unrock those people's worlds. We're supposed, you know, there's not supposed to be no delay or, man, I can't believe this happened or any of that. You're supposed to know what to do and sort of go into it. So the system has to be accountable and the individuals have to be accountable. Yeah, one of the things I noticed too when we do after reports, especially after training, um, it's, it's a lot of people sitting around patting each other on the back, saying how great of a job we did. And there's a, there's not a lot of negative stuff being said. When I say negative, I'm not talking about nitpicking on things. I'm talking about critical thinking of what's going on specifically with that event and how can we do things better. Um, and we don't get a lot of that. And you know, one time I, I wrote an after action report went in and had recommendations on how to fix things. And um, I, I was told to take it out because they're like, Hey, we can't put this in there because if it's in there, we have to have to fix it. <laughs> like, yeah, that's, that's the whole purpose of this thing. Uh, but sometimes the brass doesn't want to want to hear that. Um, what can we do? Do you think to make our after action meetings more productive and to really pull out those things that we need to change? Man, you, you know, if you want to grow, you only grow from what you did wrong, honestly, not from what you did right. Um, when, when I was a pararescue trainee back in the late 80s, the instructors would say, we're going to critique the 8% you guys did wrong, not the 92% you did right. And if you guys have an issue with that, this isn't the job for you. Because there is a ton of stuff you guys got to know, and you guys have to know it at a pretty advanced level. And the only way to understand that is this constant debrief. Fire pilots sort of do the same thing. You know, people can go on YouTube and watch a debrief from the Blue Angels or the Thunderbirds. And they don't sit there and talk about how great the crowd over Fort Lauderdale was and how turquoise the water. They talk about, man, you were two feet off here and you should have been two knots faster. And what happened there? What were you thinking? And you, that's how you grow. And so if the culture of an organization, municipality, whatever, is not that, we're not growing from this and we need to know what's going on wrong, then, you know, uh, not next thing you know, you're just going to have a powder puff atmosphere that is not going to solve anything with these crises. You know, the FD, uh, the PD, you know, those are all serious gigs and how they morph together and the complexity of the communications and where they stop and start and, and responsibility is who's doing what with supporting agencies. You have got to talk about all that stuff, and you have to call it out. Now, you know, you're not a D-I-C-K as you're calling it out. You know, you got to be proper about how you call that stuff out. Uh, compassion and accountability aren't opposing, but if you just have one or the other, then you don't have the full picture. That's <laughs> so true. Well, that is so true. And, and, and there's, you're absolutely right. There, there are certain – nuances and how to get the information across to people on how to make pro, uh, positive changes uh, without coming across as being that. Um, 
So, so moving on. So here we go. We go through some training exercises, you know, and then uh, we're looking to to make um, some changes. Uh, now, for us in, in the in the, on the civilian side of the world, you know, bringing things to our city councils or to the city managers or to the mayors or whatever your reporting structure is, um, we have to do a good job of, of selling, if you will, yeah. uh, cost-benefit analysis, if you will. Um, how, how do we present this information that we find, say, to the upper echelon uh, of command to be able to get the support and the money that we need to make things work properly? Yeah, you got to build wins, and those wins come through training. I mean, you know, pararescue had to do it in Vietnam as we were rescuing down pilots. We had to do it humanitarian until 9-11 happened. And then we had to do it as we picked up, you know, Marines and Army guys, the heinousness of IEDs blowing people up and all that stuff. So you just sort of build on wins and you always sort of grow. So all those operations I just talked about, we had, you know, 100 times more training events, part task trainers and full mission profiles, CPXs and FTXs, both with ourselves in the joint world with other services and our coalition partners. You just build these wins. It's no different for a municipality, whether it's in Iowa or, or South Florida. They're building wins. There's a reason why FEMA now selects certain teams, you know, to go out and sort of do national stuff for them because they built wins locally on how they responded. Like, you know, I was stationed at Homestead for Andrew. Um, uh, nasty, nasty storm. And Miami, Metro-Dade handled it right. Their affected FD and PD, they didn't work. They got sent home. They had uh, memorandums of understanding and agreement and support from Tampa and Jacksonville and Atlanta. And Air Force actually flew life flight for Metro-Dade while their helicopters were down. And we had joint or uh, partner paramedics on from all over that. And the guys were going and putting blue roofs on their houses and stuff like that. And then a couple weeks later, then they came back to work. And so you got to have that proper planning. And so especially the politicians, man, they're under, you know, it's easy to kick a politician and, and some of them should be kicked, but they need to have confidence that one, the first thing that's going through their head when something happens is, holy shit, did I cause that? What did I do? What policy? What didn't I fund? What didn't I short? Because there's going to be other people in, on the opposite side that are going to say, you should have funded this. You should have done that. So they're already coming from a negative atmosphere. So when you walk up and present to them, you got to go, hey, this is how we're going to get it back on track. This is what we're going to do. This is the timeline. This is suspense. You know, they need confident people in front of them that sort of have it laid out. And then they're going to be a lot easier to go, yeah, man, go do that. Keep me updated. Um, you know, and then the command and control aspect of these things, once all these command and control centers stand up, like we have air operations centers, we have tactical operations centers um, in the military. And the changeover briefing's got to be proper, and each cell that's in there has got to have an immersion briefing, and they got to constantly be, be working their top two issues, top three issues, and have a clear chart up there of where it's at, when they're going to be fixed, who's working it, why aren't they working it, how did it go bad, how do you readjust fire? So you got to, you know, time is money when it comes to these things, and you got to be succinct. So all those things together, that's how you build confidence for folks just coming in because the cream is def absolutely going to rise to the top. And then you can't worry about what other people are doing. You got to, if you're assigned, you know, I'm assigned to get water or water filters. You better be the best dang water guy or water filter guy and not worry about the food ration guy. You know what I mean? So um, that, that's probably my best advice. And then 
little victories during the day lead to good victories during the week. Next thing you know, you got good months and a good year happens. And that training cycle leads to how you respond to when that crisis happens. You know, Kelly McKinney, um, one of the guys who's, who I've interviewed in the past and he's an author of a, of a book that he's the emergency manager for, uh, for New York city for a little bit, kind of give you his background. So Kelly McKinney, he, uh, he made a good point. He was talking about briefing the mayor of New York and the mayor of New York expected that things were being done. Uh, we're putting fires out. We're doing this. We're doing that. We're doing this. What he was looking for at the time was what wasn't being done or what needed to be done that they, that that they're behind the eight ball on. And I think that's one of the things that we have to do as emergency managers is have a really good understanding to sit, situation report you know if there's a wildfire going on the the elected officials know that we're putting water on the fire you know what i mean so we but you know there are things that we're doing that we're behind on such as evacuations maybe or setting up shelters or things like this and they need to know what we're behind on because you're right they're the ones that are going to be facing the the news media. They're the ones that are going to, at the end of the day, are going to be facing the, the scrutiny um, and potentially could be losing their job over, over mismanagement of that event. So I think we do have to give them a little bit of, of slack when we go in to give a briefing, but I think we have to have a good situation report um, and understand where we stand and not be afraid to tell them, Hey, we're doing good here. Right, but we're not going to talk about what we're doing good at. This is where we need to help, and I think that's actually going to help uh, the, the the residents that we're uh, supporting during those events. What do you think about that? Yeah, I totally agree. And and the caveat I would add to that: some when I was a pararescue man and before I sort of got into being the officer and that sort of senior ranking guy, what always struck me was the guys would go, "What what do you need help with?" And then at the end they would say, "And don't slack up on what you're doing good." They're like. Keep that up and and let us know what resources you need to keep doing good. But so not only do you have to keep your foundation strong and and continually do that, but you got to progress the other stuff that's sort of out there. But it goes back to what we were talking about earlier about highlighting bad stuff versus just, you know, the fluff, man. That's a culture. You would hope that that politician, director, VP, COO, CEO, whoever it is, is going, hey, I need, you know, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day, man. You know, I mean, it's, this takes a while to sort of get to this. I mean, you can't be sitting in Des Moines, Iowa going, I want to be up to LA County speeds, you know, next month. You know, it's just not going to happen. But you could pick some stuff, set it 24 months out on the horizon as a carrot, and then you could back plan that thing going, this is what we need to do here, this is what we need to do this quarter, this is what we need that quarter. And next thing you know, 24 months down the road, you're going to reach what you need to do. But you got to, you know, some people plan for the wrong stuff. One of the things we used to do in the military is, you know, you got your most dangerous situation, your most likely, you know, and you're, and you really got to plan for your most likely, you know, like everybody needs a plan for active shooter and mass shooters, unfortunately, but you know, there's a lot of people that don't need to plan for hurricanes, you know, South Florida doesn't really need to plan for tornadoes like Oklahoma does, you know? And so, um, you just gotta, you know, there's, you got to make sure people aren't running with scissors and just planning on what they think is chic. It, the, the collective community has got to come together and go, yep, this is, this is a priority one. This is priority two. This is priority three. And this is how we're going to allocate our time and resources to it. 
Well, it's like the matrix that we use, right? High probability, low probability, high impact, low impact. Yeah. You know, so what you really want to plan for is your high probability and high impact um, situations. Yeah. You know, I mean, even with active shooter, I mean, realistically, we, we, we plan for it, especially at the school districts and whatnot, um, areas where we have large populations of people, we plan for the active shooter. But if you take a look at the statistics, the probability isn't, isn't that high. But if something does happen, the impact is, is extraordinary, right? Mm -hmm. So you, that's why you still plan for, for that because of the high impact. Yeah. But you take a look at, like, say, you know, a large-scale tsunami hitting the West Coast, you know, you know the, the probability, you know, is low. Um, and, and the impact is realistically, I mean, so, sorry for the people who live on the coast, but uh, the overall general population, the impact is moderate, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, we're going to have some serious damage to the coast. We have people that lose homes and stuff like that if you have that large-scale tsunami. Yeah. But realistically, two miles, three miles in, inland, there's really no, no direct impact. Yeah. Right. So you have to, you kind of have to, to, now if you're a coastal community, it's a completely different story. Yeah. Right. But, but so yeah, you take a look at those things. I think it's important. And that's how you, how you do your training matrix associated with that as, as well. So that, that, that makes 100% um, sense, you know? So, right. We should not be tra for, uh, training for the uh, large snow event here in uh, Southern California. Uh, and I don't think New York has to worry too much about the uh, large scale earthquake. You know, right. but uh, yeah, so that's that. Right. So yeah. move, move, moving on just a little bit, kind of back into what you're doing. So you, now today you, you guys are working on, on some kind of cool stuff, actually, with the construction of communication networks, right? Hey, let's just take about uh, 60 seconds here and listen to our sponsors. Seconds count during an emergency. That's why at Titan HST, we connect people with the latest technology possible, whether it's mesh networking, augmented reality, or real-time translation, allowing people who need help to find help immediately. Better matters because lives matter. Hey, welcome back from listening to the sponsors really quick. Without them, we couldn't do what we're doing here. So please reach out to them and tell them that Ian Weekly sent you. Now back to the interview. Right. So yeah. move, move, moving on just a little bit, kind of back into what you're doing. So you, now today, you you guys are working on on some kind of cool stuff, actually, with the construction of communication networks, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a cool little company. We're just mostly in, uh, we touch about 21, 19 states right now in the southeast. All the states that touch Georgia and all the states that touch touch those states, but we're, our customer, we're a B2B business. Our customers, Verizon, T-Mobile, and a little bit of AT&T. And we have three divisions. We have a wireless construction division. We have a retail construction division, and we have a maintenance division. We maintain HVAC and generators that sort of keep those hubs at the base of those towers going. In the wireless construction division, that's the biggest ex excitement because everybody's transitioning from 4G to 5G. And that includes these little small cells are going to be out there. And so the, the wireless infrastructure, really cellular data is becoming the fourth utility. You know, you can't do without power. You can't do without water. You can't do without somebody removing your trash. Well, try doing without, you know, your cell phone right now. And so the capacity demand is just going through the roof. And then in fact, it, it's, it's, it's not scaring folks, but it's like, whoa, how are we going to handle all this? And so things are going to fiber optic. You know, if you think about speed of light versus coaxial, 
you know, light versus RF spectrum, how much data it can handle, how fast it can go, and what you can process. They're retweaking all the radios of Nokia, Panasonic, and uh, Motorola's for the emergency, and I always forget the last one, Nokia, Panasonic, and I'm sorry, I forget the last one, but uh, Ericsson, Ericsson's it. And so they're building all these small cell radios that are going to be about every 250 meters and put up. So really the Internet of Things, autonomous autonomy, all that stuff that everybody's promoting you see on TV, um, until that skeleton of the 5G network is there to handle all that stuff, that stuff's not coming. So we're one of many companies in the U.S. that is contracted by Verizon and T-Mobile and AT&T and Sprint to put this stuff in and it's it's pretty cool what we're doing specifically our company we have a great business development guy named phil who has got with verizon and gotten access to military bases so military bases have have been a black hole for signals and what the cellular companies have done with these big macro towers is called surround and pound they buy private property outside the bases steer their antennas toward turn up the signal and try to try to capture those cell phones that are looking for a signal inside the base. Well, in the military, it's actually become a detriment to operational mission. They have bought electronic checklists that don't work on the flight line. Um, uh, the command posts for the security forces or military police on the bases when they run an exercise or an actual live event of an active shooter and they blast out a text message, only a third or a fifth of those go out because how bad the capacity is on the base to handle all that. So now that all these small cells are coming in, we have to gain base access and our guys have cracked the code on now putting all these things on bases. So those large military installations, there's 200 of them across the U.S., can have the same capacity as off-base does and will have. So let's talk about the 5G network for just for a couple of seconds here. So I keep hearing about 5G. I know LA City has some areas and they're using some, I think their public safety and um, public works um, have 5G capable uh, um, tools. What is, let me rephrase it, how big of a game changer is 5G going to be for public safety? Well, you know, if you look at all the after action reports and there's true after action reports of all these different stuff, the communication was way down. And so really what the department of commerce has done is said, Hey, you guys got to develop a first net. And so there's this first net capacity that's going to come happen. That's almost a 5g for the government. So we're not laying the government on the same civilian network that's out there. Now they can sort of cross over and sort of support each other, which is good, but, so they're addressing two different issues. 5G is just, 5G is one through 4G combined, to be honest with you. All the guts of the macro towers have to be changed out. All the radios, all the antennas, it's just all new technology um, that is happening. And then all these little small cells are going to help with the latency of the signals that are out there. So it's just, it's just sort of faster, faster data. And, and so, you know, faster is better. You don't like seeing that little spin deal happen. So. Um, I think the biggest thing for the government and EM is that first net that's happening. And, and the Department of Commerce is overseeing that. Um, there's some great videos on YouTube that the FCC chairman has talked about where, um, you know, urban areas that don't have, you know, there's more cell phones and landlines now, but yet cell phones don't work. And so we're having people that are having strokes and heart attacks and, and injuries that in the past used to 
survived that have passed away because of how long it took EMS to get there. Um, so I think they're, you know, from a government standpoint of what we're seeing, and we have a couple lobbyist groups in DC um, that feed us information and we pay to sort of feed the community information on business that we're trying to do. Um, there, there's good, there's good progress associated with this. This is probably something that it, both parties can agree on that, you know, phones are important. Utilities are important. And it's sort of a foundation, you know, it's at the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs now. One of the things with, with cell specifically um, compared to landline is that with landline, for reverse 911, I hate using that term, but mass notification, um, we could actually get the data from AT&T or Verizon um, or whoever else is your landline carrier in the area, put them in the system, and we can push notification to your landlines. However, the way the – and if I think it's currently the same way, and, and like if I'm wrong, please somebody – chime in and correct me, um, that we can't do the same with cell phones. That with a cell phone, we have to have an opt-in for your mass notification systems. And that's been causing some issues. And you take a look at what happened with like in Butte County, um, where the Paradise Fire, or Paradise, where the campfire was, yeah. um, with the, the with some of the communication issues that were up there. Um, uh, UC Davis had an issue where they pushed out uh, 70,000 messages and like 20,000 got through. You know, there's all these issues associated with the mass, mass notification systems. And yeah. I think a lot of it has to do with, with going back to, um, number one, the speed of the cell towers, and, and number two, uh, people not understanding how important it is to, to opt in uh, to get these messages. Again, what can we do to partner with the carrier groups um, to to ensure that we have better mass notification to our cell phone uh, carriers. Hold well, I think, I think it's just about communication. I would invite them to the debriefs after these things happen. Um, carriers have what they call cows sell on wheels. So if, if a big storm took their network down, they would put these cows out there to sort of handle the capacity. Um, now, really what you're talking about bounces in between privacy issues and sort of, you know, general public knowledge and need and care. And so, you know, there's a lot of people out there that don't trust the government in, in different aspects to do stuff. And so if they're savvy and know how to use their phone and they don't want mass communications, that's sort of um, that type of deal. I, you know, that's um, as far as the details and the engineering of sort of how it works and, and the capacity, um, really all I know is what they're battling is latency. And latency is just slow speed. And so they're just trying to speed up. The more the faster things go and get out of the network, out of the, out, you know, out of the pipe, the more stuff you could put in there, and so the more people you can notify. So, from a strategic level, that's really what they're trying to handle right there. The privacy issue is always going to be, you know, the Google, the Google CEO was briefing Congress, and that's a neat YouTube video that people should look at. And you know, one there's you got these old archaic people that are used to not even sending emails when they turn 50, you know, um, just like our grandparents are. And they're asking this guy some pretty incompetent questions. And then two, he's given some pretty detailed answers trying to be kind to them and they weren't grasping it. So I think as generations age and we become more tech savvy and more than, I think it'll all wash out to be honest with you. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a pretty optimistic dude that all this stuff will, will sort of watch out and it's up to grandkids and, and kids to sort of look out for the grandparents if they're not tech savvy. And I think we're already doing that, you know? 
Yeah, we are. It's funny you say that because uh, um, a couple of years ago, I bought my my mother-in-law a uh, an Apple phone, iPhone, and uh, she she hated it. She couldn't stand it. She didn't know how to work it. Couldn't figure it out. Right. And then uh, my my daughter, who's little, she she can figure out how to do all the stuff. And she'd say, "Grandma, no, this is the way you have to do it." Yeah. So I ended up having to go back and buy my mother-in-law a flip phone this year for Christmas because uh, <laughs> yeah. she she was not happy with the iPhone. But yeah, I know. I think you're right. I think once we we have uh, generations understanding how to use it, um, like like I said, my my daughter, she's grown up. She understands how to use technology like crazy and i think it's just going to be uh, they're going to they're going to rule the world at this point with that Man, um, what we have to do to that generation though is we have to love them through it we don't criticize them and go man you're archaic you know you're even though i just used the word archaic earlier not <laughs> that with, with kindness and love in a joking way like i got an aunt every time i talk to her she thinks we have to get off the phone quick because it's costing me money to call her <laughs> you know, I, I pay for my dad's cell phone bill. He's like, I don't want to use up all your data. I'm like, Dad, I pay for unlimited data. Surf the web all you want, text whoever you want, you know. But they're still, so you just love them through it, man. You know, if you got to say it to them, eighty-seven hundred times, it is what it is, and and you know, you just don't because we are going so fast in life and all that, slowing down and breathing in crisis situations at the be, you know, slow is smooth, smooth is fast. Right. All those things are great great mantras for life, man. You know, they really are. Dude. They are. Yeah, they really are. Hey, so with, with the new, um, 5g and what you guys are doing with the cell towers and stuff like this. Now I'm, I've been reading some, some things and I know that, um, the driverless cars want to rely upon that network. Um, is this something that we're going to see, you know, become more commercially viable in the next say 10, 15 years, or are we still far off on, on using those technology? You know, it, it's it's tough to say because we're at the beginning of putting in the small cell network and the, the carriers want it in like yesterday. And so as tower guys who used to just work on the big macro towers, as we get better and better putting in the small cells, you got to have fiber there, you got to have power there, you got to have a pole, you got to test it, you got to turn over. There's engineering associated with the rating of the pole. There's some real estate that's got to go along, the easement of all these municipalities. And now that happens, it's, a, it's sort of an eight milestone process that they evaluate us on. But as, as the teams get better and putting these things in, then, you know, like that's the skeleton for whatever is going to be hung on there. And so, you know, I'm, like, I'm a fan of Tesla. I'm a fan of SpaceX. I'm a fan of all the stuff that Detroit's doing and the big, you know, there's a ton of different companies out there. I just don't want to focus in on Musk and what he's doing. But I believe in what these guys are doing. And if you give them the right, you know, it's just almost like building the train before the train tracks. You know, where's it going to go? So once you get that train track out there and this 5G network is going to be a viable train track for all that IoT and autonomous and autonomy, um, it's almost like a DAS system in a building. Like if you had robotics in Amazon, Amazon has robots and going, they have a DAS system, a distributed antenna system that is controlling all the signals of all that stuff. Well, we're talking about putting a DAS system across the United States, just not in a building. And so it's just exponentially more complex to do that on a larger scale. But, but it's, it's going down what, what we're having. So um, it's, it's going to be eight to 10 years unless we really get, efficient at sticking those small cells up and turn them on and, and having them communicate with each other. Right now, the slowdown is Ericsson, Panasonic, 
Nokia, they're behind a little bit on building all the radios that are needed. And so once the carriers get those radios and they give them to companies like ours and install these things, they're going to start going across the U.S. We are going to have, it's funny, we, we've seen videos on people like, I, I need better signal, I need better signal. You hang a small cell outside your house, they're like, take that thing down, it's an eyesore. <laughs> you know, so there's a little bit of, of, you know, people like, man, you know, careful what you wish for. You're gonna right. Get, so. That's funny. Yeah, it's <laughs> kind of funny. Yeah. Oh man. Okay, so we're cutting here to the to the end. Um, real quick, if somebody wanted to get in touch with you, how could they find you? Yeah, man, I'm not on any social media but LinkedIn, but um, I I communicate with people on LinkedIn all the time. So more than happy to uh, Joseph Barnard B A R N A R D, and uh, yeah, that's that's about it. I really don't have anything going on except my work, and I like helping people. If there's any, you know, I stay close to veterans and military issues. My wife and I, 28-year marriage, so we like, uh, unfortunately, divorce rates fairly high in the military, and, and that's something we're very passionate about. She's a yoga instructor, so I recommend highly that people marry a yoga instructor. If you want to have, have a good life, marry a yoga instructor. So she's a winner, and uh, one of the things we like doing is just sort of helping young people just sort of get through all the trials and you know, I had a bunch of deployments, a lot of time away, and uh, she had to handle a lot of stuff that I should have been there to handle, and, and sort of so how we got through that without tension towards each other and things of that nature. That's sort of what we're passionate about and what we'll try to do moving forward after we make some money here. Well, congratulations on uh, 28 years. That's a, that's, a, that's a great, especially military marriage. You know, that's, yeah. uh, for those of us that were in the military, it's hard life for, for the, for the spouses. So yeah, it um, sure is. They sacrifice more than, you know, it's almost like people out there think about if they have no association with the military whatsoever, think about watching your kids do something and you're more worried for your kids than you are yourself. So the military members, you know, you know, this Todd, you're deployed, your spouse was back there worrying more than what you were when you were out doing whatever you were doing. When I was outside the wire doing my stuff, I wasn't worried about myself, you know, but they're back there just sort of worrying and, and it's, uh, it takes a special person to support a military member for sure. Yeah. Every odd ring of the phone, if in the middle of the night, you know, gets them their heart or any knock on the door when they're not expecting somebody gets their heart racing. So, yeah, yeah. oh man. All right. Well, what last question or the toughest question I should say, what book, book or publication do you recommend to somebody in the field of emergency management? So I read so much for work that I am not a leisure reader at all. So what I have gotten into is podcasts. I think Joe Rogan has an amazing podcast. I think Andy Stumps, a former Navy SEAL, if you're a young guy and you don't listen to Andy Stumps, cleared hot, you're wrong. For business, I listen to A16Z. They're a, a venture capital firm out of Silicon Valley. Anderson Horowitz, that's why it's A16Z. Um, they have tons of different podcasts on business information, startups, you know, all the aspects of P&Ls, AP, AR, you know, HR, logistics, all the stuff that sort of, you know, what how businesses need to run. So I'm just a podcast fiend, to be honest with you. And so I don't... If I do read something for leisure, it's like a Hemingway. It's sort of like just an old, just an escape because I read so much for work on, on the technical stuff. So sorry to cop out on you there, but I, hopefully I provide a good, good avenue out. 
No, man, that's that's perfect. It's a publication. That's the way I look at it. So anything that's going to help people move forward and, and learn about uh, what's going on in the world, I think is important. Yeah. So if you could talk to all the emergency managers in the world at one time, what would you tell them? I would just tell them to be ready and to be ready. You know, it's coming, whether you don't know it's going to happen. So you just got to methodically plan. You got to plan. You got to build that skeleton that you could flex off of and you got to exercise. And I would say if there's somebody coming in late or something like that, don't get frustrated with them. Just get them up to speed in a calm, deliberate manner uh, because you don't, there's enough tension from these events already. You don't want to add to that tension. Um, and then specifically, I would say have four complete parts to yourself. You got to have the proper affect. You got to have the proper cognitive smartness of, of what you're doing. You got to have the proper health and you got to have the proper practice. And probably the only thing we didn't touch on in this thing is health, but health is so important. Um, you don't work out for yourself. You worked out so you can support others and make good decisions and all that type of stuff. So it's, it's way beyond fitness. And so you got to have those four corners of clarity in order to have a good center moving forward. That's so true. I, I just, uh, after being off the, the bandwagon for a little bit because of an injury, I'm getting back into uh, to working out. And I'll tell you something, doing that, I feel so much better about myself in the morning and, and uh, being able to spend more time and energy with my kids. And that's the important part right yeah. there. Getting yeah. back to my fight shape, as I, as I say. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, Joe, thank you so much for, for being here. Um, looking forward to, to still stay connected with you and maybe sometime we'll have you on again. Yeah, man, Todd, anytime you need anything, uh, please let me know. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to, to talk to your audience.